This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman, KNX In-Depth, Daily News Magazine, where we dig deeper on the big stories of the day with newsmakers and experts from wherever news happens. We take the news seriously, maybe not ourselves that much. We cover everything from breaking news to the just plain interesting. KNX In-Depth digs deep, asks the hard questions to bring you the facts you need to know on the menu. For today's show, the evidence continues to mount. If you want the best protection possible against the COVID Omicron variant, get your booster shot. Why was the LAPD paying a Polish company to monitor social media for the use of terms like Black Lives Matter and defund the police? And LAUSD's new superintendent will be among the highest paid leaders of any major school district in the country. Is he worth it? The NBA, the NFL, the NHL, they're all undergoing a winter COVID surge. Players and coaches will ask what that means for the rest of us. The new Trump media company is uh, marketing like crazy, even though it doesn't really have anything to show yet. And then at the end of the show, a friend of the show, author Michael Connolly, is back to talk about the dark hours. But we start with Omicron, the booster shots, and Dr. Gregory Poland, who directs the vaccine research group at the Mayo Clinic. Doctor, thanks for being back with us. You bet. So it sounded like good news today out of uh, Dr. Fauci in uh, D.C. that uh, it appears, he seems to be saying, that if you have a booster shot of the existing, uh, certainly the uh, messenger RNA vaccines, Moderna and Pfizer, that uh, Omicron isn't something to be that feared? Uh, Well, maybe I wouldn't put it quite that way. So these are early data. We'll see how they hold up. But if you've had two previous doses of an mRNA vaccine, the efficacy against Omicron is down around 30 to 40%. Get that booster and it looks like you're in the 70 to 90%. That's not 100%, but that's awfully good. And so that's the value and the reason that uh, any of us that are involved in vaccinology are trying to tell people this is important to your health and the health of your family over these holidays. Get a booster. Okay. Do you think it ends up changing the definition of fully vaccinated someday? I mean, it was two and done, but now if two is not going to cut it with this around and if it can really outcompete Delta, then three is what you're going to need. Yeah, I think I think you're right, is that we are going to be thinking about for people with normal immune systems that a three dose series is optimal. For people who are immunocompromised, it may well be four doses and possibly more. When, to be perfectly clear, when you are talking about the booster giving you that uh, 70 to 90 spread, are, are you talking about uh, against infection, uh, symptomatic or otherwise, or are you talking about hospitalizations and possibly death? Yeah, we're talking about the more severe disease. So severe disease, hospitalization, death. When it comes to Omicron, if it is more mild, and we can hope that it continues to prove to be that way, do we really worry being boosted people about getting it? Or is it more of a, you know what, it's probably going to be something that you'll deal with for a few days, and then you take your 10 days out of the office, and it's unfortunate this happened to you, but you know what, you're going to come out the other side. Well, several things about that. Again, you know, we tend to think black and white like a light switch. This is a rheostat. So, the, the severity of disease is milder, but it's not zero. So there will be people who die, get hospitalized, who get long COVID and whose lives are changed by Omicron. There'll be other people who 
will find out they were infected by chance but had no symptoms and everything in between. The early, early, and I wanna stress that because these data are coming from South Africa, which is a very different epidemiologic context than the US, those early data suggest that the disease spectrum tilts more toward the mild, but uh, that could still mean more disease in the nation because the transmissibility and the number of cases will be so high. To be very, very clear, and I'll put myself out on the line here, I believe that by mid-January, we're going to have an explosion of COVID cases in the U.S. Okay, so now let's add to the mix uh, someone who's boosted, and we expect uh, that within the next few weeks, we will probably have not one, but, but maybe two uh, antiviral pills, one courtesy of, of uh, Merck, well, not courtesy, because they're going to make a lot of money, <laughs> <laughs> and the other uh, Pfizer. If you put all of that together, uh, booster shots, uh, the pills that we expect to have, uh, how do you feel about the situation if indeed we are going into a January, as you and some others have said, by the way, uh, where we may see a surge of cases? Yeah, it's a great question. The, the issue will be how fast and how broadly will those antivirals be available? It will take a while uh, before they're broadly and, and easily available. Once they are, what that will have the tendency to do is scrunch more and more of the disease burden into the mild category. And we, we would hope we would see far less in the way of severe disease, hospitalizations, and deaths. Dr. Gregory Polins directs the Vaccine Research Group at the Mayo Clinic. Coming up, the LAPD paid a Polish communications firm to monitor social media for mentions of certain terms like Black Lives Matter and defund the police. Why? This is KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Still to come, Michael Connolly back with a new novel. Ballard and Bosch will have him on. And uh, before that, COVID is hitting the professional sports leagues pretty hard. Right now, though, the LAPD facing criticism before for monitoring social media feeds of department critics. Now we learn that in the fall of last year, the LAPD paid a strategic communications firm in Poland to scout social media for terms like Black Lives Matter and defund the police, which doesn't sound a lot like crime prevention work. We should point out that we did reach out to the LAPD to take part in this segment or at least provide a comment about its contract with the Polish firm, but the LAPD did not respond to our requests. But someone who did respond, Mary Pat Dwyer, who is a fellow in the Library and Liberty, I'm sorry, a national security program at the Brennan Center for Justice. And they are the people who revealed the LAPD contract with that Polish firm. Thanks for being with us. So uh, I don't know what to make of this. Uh, I, I, and since we don't hear from the LAPD, what do you make of it? Hi, yeah, thanks so much for having me on. I'm really excited to talk about these documents, which we think are really eye-opening in terms of how the police use social media in LA and how they view uh, certain groups. I think two things that we take away from these documents, uh, one is the volume of, of activity that they're monitoring online. 
it's a fairly short trial period, only a little bit over a month. Um, and yet LAPD collected nearly 2 million tweets in that time. I think the other thing that's really striking about these documents is the breadth of monitoring that was going on. We saw tweets coming in where the only sort of limiter on what the LAPD was collecting were a set of very broad search terms, nearly 200 of those, um, and the limiter that the tweets needed to be in English. And as you mentioned at the top of the segment, it's difficult to see how English language tweets uh, collected using these broad terms could possibly be useful for ensuring safety in LA. Yeah, I mean, I guess if you're looking for narratives or something, then you can use this. But if you're trying to use it as like a crime prevention strategy or something like that, it's not like I'm going to post, I'm going to go out and create some civil unrest. And then they go, ooh, this guy over here. And when there's two million, how are you going to find your needle in your haystack? Yeah, I think that's right. I think bringing in this incredible volume of data on a daily basis, we're seeing nearly 70,000 tweets per day. Um, It's very unclear how it could be useful. And I think it's also important to point out within these search terms are concepts that the police really has no business monitoring online because they're simple expressions um, of speech and association that are protected by the First Amendment. People are permitted to say online that they have concerns about policing or that they want to participate in protests. And that in and of itself is not something that is a safety risk or that it you know, is related to any criminal activity. Do we know, do you know how much money was spent on this and why this firm in Poland? I would presume there are domestic companies that could do the same thing. So this is a free trial, this particular trial that uh, we released documents on today with the tool ABT Shield. But I think zooming out a little bit, going to maybe a 30,000 foot level, We've been working through documents we received from the LAPD for months now, and we see over and over again, attempting to work with or working with various different companies. We've tracked, I believe, 10 companies that either the LAPD considered working with or did work with for a trial or for a longer period of time. So setting aside why it selected ABT Shield for this particular trial, we see that it's looking for these tools over and over again Um, that do bring in this vast amount of data on these non-criminal topics. Mary Pat Dwyer, fellow in the Liberty and National Security Program, the Brennan Center for Justice. All right. From the LAPD to the LAUSD, the new superintendent will be very well compensated for running the second biggest school district in the country. Is he worth it? This is KNX In-Depth, along with Charles Feldman. I'm Mike Simpson. There's a new serial killer menacing the residents of Los Angeles. Luckily, it's just a fictional serial killer from the mind of Michael Connolly, who comes back to In-Depth in the 2 p.m. hour. Before that, Donald Trump's aspirations of being a media mogul have seemingly come to fruition. But what exactly does a Trump media empire have to offer? Right now, though, the incoming LAUSD superintendent, Alberto Carvalho, set to be paid $440,000 a year when he takes over the nation's second largest school district in March, makes him among the highest paid superintendents in the country. Is he worth it? And Vasquez is executive director of the California Education Reporting Analysis and Consulting Firm EdSource. And thanks for being with us. So that's 90 grand more than uh, Butner, the outgoing superintendent. So I guess uh, if he's better, then that's great. But these guys are pretty different when you look at them. 
Absolutely. And thanks for having me. Yes. You know, I, I think it's, it's hard to compare the two. Um, you know, Alberto Carvalho has come from education. I mean, even from the classroom, he also has had um, tremendous success. Uh, I think many would say at Miami-Dade schools where he's been for the last 14 years. And I think, you know, the credit has been given to him in Miami-Dade from those who agree with him and those who don't. So I think that says a lot. Okay, uh, fair enough. Uh, but in the private world, private enterprise, uh, very often the money for a CEO is pegged on performance, things like uh, share prices of stock and things like that. Uh, what's the metric that ought to be used to decide if, say, after a year, he's worth the money they're paying him? Well, you know, in the state of California, at least looking at last year's um, kind of metrics, the average salary for uh, a district superintendent, a large district uh, superintendent, was about 300000 So Butner was making above the average, which I think you could argue is the case for the state's largest school district and also the second largest in, in the country. Um, and, you know, Carvalho will be obviously making a lot more than that. The in his contract and also in, in terms of guidelines that the LA Unified School Board has adopted over the last year, they're tying um, quite a bit, I think, to his performance. And, and they're being pretty specific in terms of um, what what they need to be measured on in terms of performance evaluation when, when the time comes, you know, everything from uh, fiscal you know, responsibility and sustainability, uh, graduation rates, student achievement. There's even a metric for parent and community engagement and transparency and accountability. So there's a lot, uh, I think, that he needs to get accomplished in a very short amount of time. So we're sure this is not just some situation where if he gets here and it doesn't work out, okay, write out the four-year contract at 440 a year and then get a new guy? Well, you know, I will say there's been a lot of turnover in LA Unified. This is the sixth permanent superintendent in uh, about 20 years. And research, education research, research has shown that turnover and student achievement are tied. You know, so the, the, the more stability there is in leadership in a district, the better the student achievement. So I, I think everyone involved certainly hopes that it will work out because that means Ultimately, it should be better for the students. But I'm sure he would have asked this before he took the, the gig. Uh, why such a turnover, 6 and 20? You know, depending on whom you ask, you're going to probably get a different answer. I think when you're talking about a, a district the size of LA Unified, we're talking about they, they educate, you know, one in 10 public, you know, public school students in California, uh, you know, about 500, that half a million students. Um, they've, you know, in terms of the number of schools, in, in terms of just the sheer geography of LA Unified, it's a high needs district um, in terms of, you know, low income, um, uh, in terms of uh, students with disabilities and just just challenges. So it, there's there's a lot of issues that are complex and, and nuanced and, it's not easy, I think, for a leader to take on all of those challenges. And then now you add to it a pandemic that not only has impacted um, student achievement and kind of increased the learning gaps that already existed, but you add in the issue of mental health, which is absolutely a concern uh, among students today. It's a challenge. And the, the school board in LA Unified is a strong school, school board. They, you know, they each... 
uh, oversee a, a specific geographic region of the district while obviously keeping the whole district in mind. And that setup in and of itself probably contributes, you know, to the the challenges, at least the ability to kind of manage a district as well as manage the size of it. It's it's just it's a it's a tall order. And Vasquez, executive director, the California Education Reporting Analysis and Consulting Firm EdSource. Well, still ahead, Michael Connolly is going to be back with us. We're going to talk about uh, all the things that are coming out of his creative mind. This is KNX In-Depth, your daily deep dive into some of the more important and interesting stories affecting all of our lives. With Mike Simpson, I'm Charles Feldman. Several hockey teams in the NHL have been forced to cancel a week or more of games after dozens of players and coaches have tested positive for COVID and have been forced to isolate. Earlier this week, the NBA team, the Brooklyn Nets, played a game with the minimum eight players because everyone else on the team had COVID. For professional sports teams, the COVID winter surge has arrived. NFL heavily impacted the Rams, LA Rams, 13 players in the league's COVID protocols. They've added a couple each day as we've gone through the last few days. Uh, Dr. Zachary Binney, epidemiologist, professor of data sciences at Emory University. He's done health consulting for the NFL, MLB, NBA, and NCAA. Doctor, thanks for being with us. So what do you think this is? Is it the close contact? Is it the being together, the playing the sports? Or is it, um, you know, these guys are getting tested a lot. Yeah, it's a great question. I think it's probably a combination of a couple of things. So we know that COVID doesn't spread uh, very well outdoors, but when you're on a sports team, you're not just spending time on the football field or the soccer pitch outside. You're spending time in meeting rooms, uh, in cafeterias, in weight rooms, in training rooms and medical care. And a lot of that time so far this season has been unmasked uh, if you're vaccinated. And we've seen some sporadic cases here and there, but more or less, uh, even with a lot of testing, things have been kept under uh, pretty good control uh, until the last week or two when we've really seen a massive uh, uptick. And I think we're all still trying to figure out exactly what to make of that. I was going to ask, I mean, do we know if it's because of the waning efficacy of vaccines? Is it because they're not boosted? Is it because of the Omicron variant or all three? Fantastic question. Uh, First of all, I would encourage everyone who is eligible, which is pretty much everyone who is four or six months out from their vaccine, uh, to get boosted. Uh, I did. My entire family has. So I would recommend that uh, to anybody. I don't think what we're seeing in sports is due primarily to waning vaccine efficacy, because that would have been a little more gradual. We've seen a very sudden spike, especially in the NFL over the last week or so. Omicron is a little more plausible for that. It's still, our best data is that it's still fairly rare in the US, but that data could be a little bit behind. And if you got even one or two Omicron cases into say the LA Rams and the Cleveland Browns um, with what we know about Omicron's uh, transmissibility, it could have certainly spread through those organizations very quickly and resulted in a lot more Omicron cases than you might think given 
uh, the rarity in uh, the U.S. in general. So what do these teams do past what they're already doing? I guess you can encourage boosters, right? Or you can go to these different kind of tiers and levels and they say, okay, now more masking or more distancing or you guys are, you know, you're on the list and you're not playing for a while. Um, But at a certain point, you got to start to worry in some of these where you can field your star players or, you know, the NBA's got Christmas games. and That's the big thing. If you can't get people out there, what are you going to do? Absolutely. I mean, uh, the the best thing you can do certainly is be vaccinated because we know that that helps you clear the virus quicker. Even if you do get infected, it makes you less likely to get infected, but it's not a guarantee. Uh, It makes you much less likely to be hospitalized or suffer severe illness. A very, very high percentage of the people who are very sick are sick because they are unvaccinated. Okay. Uh, So certainly we want you to get vaccinated. We want you to get boosted. Um, doing this testing and identifying cases and situations quickly before they can balloon out of control is good because you can isolate the people who are sick uh, with frequent testing and then hopefully avoid mostly these situations that you're seeing, for example, um, for the Rams. Uh, The NFL has already sprung into action and put, I think, seven teams so far under what they call their enhanced protocols. So that's going back to masks indoors, more virtual meetings, moving as many things outside where it's harder to transmit the virus uh, as you can. These are all great steps that were proven last year um, when there was no Omicron variant, but there were also no vaccines to do a very good job at keeping COVID under control. So I hope uh, other leagues will take uh, similar steps springing into action when you see a small number of cases to hopefully mostly avoid uh, any huge outbreaks and huge disruptions. Though I know we've already seen some games canceled in the NBA and the NHL, the NFL playing only once per week has a little more ability to get guys back even after they test positive. Dr. Zachary Binney, epidemiologist, professor of data sciences, Emory University has consulted for the NFL, the MLB, the NBA, the NCAA. All those letters. Yes. And KNX. Those are some good letters. (laughs) Yes. Donald Trump, you remember him, uh, his new media company, valued at $10 billion, which is really interesting because it doesn't do anything yet when we come back. This is KNX In-Depth, Mike Simpson and Charles Feldman. Well, it is called the Trump and Media Technology Group. And while the uh, media empire, or at least the hoped-to-be empire, the former president of the U.S., has some building blocks in place. For example, they just uh, inked a deal with a video streaming service. It's still very unclear what types of media products this company is going to actually deliver. And yet, and yet there are some estimates floating around Wall Street that the value of the new Trump media company as, is as high as $10 billion. So what's going on with this thing? Tim Miller writes for The Bulwark and has uh, co-founded the Republican Voters Against Trump. who served as communications director for Jeb Bush's 2016 presidential campaign and the Republican National Committee. Tim, thanks for being with us. So, again, there's been a lot of teasing ahead to what's coming from the Trump team and, and what they're going to do. There's also something we've noticed, a whole bunch of text messages going out. Join us and, and fundraise here and, and be a part of this. But again, not much to show for it. So what's going on? Well, a lot of these texts aren't even from 
the Trump social site itself. So I, I think that's impor- important to keep in mind. So Trump has, you know, for a while been trying to figure out how he could leverage his name and uh, get back at the big tech companies a- in order to, you know, make money for himself, start a business, make money for his family. Um, Trump social is ostensibly the outgrowth of that. Um, it is a literal Twitter knockoff. If you look at the images they've put up in, in promotional materials, it looks exactly like Twitter, but just says truth instead of Twitter. Uh, but we've not actually seen any product yet. Uh, and, and so uh, obviously they're trying to build excitement and investors for that, for that um, social media site to the extent that it, it even exists. Meanwhile, uh, Republican committees like the National Republican Senate Committee, National Republican Congressional Committee, you know, Marco Rubio, all these all these candidates want to raise money for themselves. So they are sending you texts, you know, because they know that people want to sign up for Trump social or for truth social. And so they're asking people to contribute five, ten dollars to their political committee uh, and, and and basically presenting it as, you know, we're going to give you an early insight into into truth social when that's not true um and so <laughs> no irony there intended uh, they're like they're literally just you know it is it is misleading marketing by republican politicians that are trying to you leverage trump's name to raise money for themselves do we know do you know how much money trump has already raised for this I know this. The market cap of True Social is now up to two billion. Um, it's not True Social itself. There's actually, uh, without getting too into the weeds, there's uh, an SPAC, a SPAC, um, uh, uh, DWAC, that is the holding company uh, for True Social. Uh, their stock has gone from ten to I haven't checked today, but ten to you know in the forty fifty range um, uh, since they announced this uh, and giving it a, a market cap of two billion. Now, not all that has gone into Trump's pocket. Uh, a lot of that's gone into the pockets of investors. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, the, the actual uh, money accrued to, to Trump and his family, uh, you know, th- they haven't filed that. But, but this is all for a product that at the moment is nothing. Like it's just a landing page that yeah. says, give us your email. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it, I mean, it makes you, uh, I'm, as, I'm as capitalist as you get, guys, but it makes you have some doubts about the free market system. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is, it is, it's nothing. It's air. Uh, you know, if you look at the PowerPoint that they put together for investors, um, I, I mean, it's nonsense. They don't even give the names of, of the, you know, people at the top levels of the organization, usually for a big tech product, you know, you tell investors, here's who our chief technology officer is. They just put things in there like Bob R. You know, and um, uh, so, so oh, yes, of course, him. Him. <laughs> yeah. yes, oh, yeah. famous hey, Bob. Yeah, Bob. <laughs> yeah, we're in good hands with Bob. Um, <laughs> it, 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 it all signs from the outside point to the fact that this is, you know, simply an effort to raise a lot of money and they'll figure out the details on the back end. So do we expect anything soon? How far away is the back end? Because I, I guess they they would have. I mean, promised goalposts. You usually do when you're going to form something. Have we already blown through those? I mean, I guess we got the Devin Nunes news. So as long as there's a trickle of news that something is happening, it keeps people kind of on the line. I, yeah, I look, I think so. I, I think that there's a lot of this is just blind investment in Trump. I think there's some good reason, right, to believe that like Trump has this massive following and, you know, that eventually he, he would be able to monetize that uh, based on, you know, the demand for people getting away from from the big social media networks. Uh, but if you look at this PowerPoint, 
of, of of Truth Social. It's preposterous. I mean, it's nothing. It's 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 a it's complete. It's a complete flimflam effort um, on behalf of them. I, I don't think there's any reason to believe that there's an actual product coming coming anytime soon. Yeah, I mean, does this run afoul of any laws, regulations, anything? Well, so, uh, you know, my expertise is on the political side. So, um, you know, on uh, the problem here with like the FEC, which is the Federal Election Commission, is they've become completely toothless. Uh, and, and they've allowed for, you know, I think just this massive advance of, of frankly, I don't know if illegal is the right word, but certainly unethical political marketing. And this goes, I think, on both parties, by the way. But but the Trump has been Trump and, and the Republicans have abused it the most. You know, things like, you know, we'll we'll you pay five bucks and we can sign you up for Truth Social when it isn't even Truth Social, when it's the National Republican Senate Committee. And then you have a pre a box that's pre-checked and they start taking five bucks out of your account every month. And some people, particularly older people, can't even you know, don't even realize this, right? People who aren't as familiar with online, you know, marketing. In past times, the Federal Election Commission would crack down on this and create rules. But the Federal Election Commission is now completely toothless, and there's no reason to believe that they will crack down on this false marketing. The SEC is a different animal. Uh, and that is, you know, whether, you know, the tr- Trump has, uh, Trump and True Social and DWAC have advanced any untrue information in their, uh, financial filings uh, for for the SPAC and for the stock, um, there is certainly legal risk there. Uh, I, I don't have any insight into you know whether what they're doing here has has broke those rules at all. But I, there's it's much more fruitful on that side than on the political side. These guys are going to get away with it on the political side. I kind of wonder about the you know the retail investors that jumped in to the the, the SPAC. So the SPAC's the company that is meant to join up with this one and then take it all public someday. But you know if you got in on day two or three when it really spiked, you've already kind of lost your lunch when it went back down. So oops. Oh yeah, I mean the people who got in really right away have taken about a four or five x um jump you know which is real money but yeah you know it went it it skyrocketed to the moon you know like amc and gamestop and some of these meme stocks it skyrocketed and then came back down and is now leveled off is Um, is it i mean it it sounds essentially like a very uh, elaborate sophisticated version of a gofundme page and obviously there's been, you know, people that have abused that. Um, yeah, you know, this sort of like um, notion of, hey, I'm going to start a, you know, I'm going to fund a movie, right? And if you guys pitch in 10 bucks, then I'll yeah. give you a t-shirt, right? <laughs> um, right. Uh, you know, from, signed by the actors, right? Um, uh, there is that element of that of, of this to that, but obviously you have to follow ru- rules much more closely when you go into, you know, a public stock, a public stock market. And I, I don't, you know, the question, I, I guess Nunes leaving Congress shows that there's at least some interest in making this serious. I, I think that I, I had some questions at the start about whether they ever actually cared to create a site, uh, you know, and, and Trump was just kind of taking advantage of the influx of cash. It's not like he hadn't done that before with Trump University and all, you know, his various scams before he became president. Um, but uh, but it seems like they're trying to build an, act, an actual product here. And, and um, you know, so so in some ways it has some similarities to that, too, to what you're talking about. But but. You know, the, I, there's a level of seriousness with it that that changes once you get into you know publicly traded stocks. Tim Miller writes for the Bulwark, co-founded the Republican Voters Against Trump. More in depth, another half an hour. Michael, Michael Connolly. Connolly, yes, coming back to the show. We'll hear from him in just a little bit.
This is KNX's in-depth daily program that goes beyond the headlines to bring you a fresh take on the most interesting stories of the day. I'm Mike Simpson. And I'm Charles Feldman, journalist-turned-novelist Michael Connolly. has been fascinating readers for decades with stories of the relentless detective Harry Bosch and his quest for justice on behalf of murder victims. Not his only character, though. Renee Ballard, also LAPD, latest with her, The Dark Hours. It's going to bring these two together again. And uh, here with us again, Michael Connolly himself. Welcome back. Always fun. Thanks for talking to us. Well, thanks for having me back again. So speaking of things that are fun, uh, it's not the first time that these two have met, right, Ballard and Bosch. But it must be fun when you cross them back over and you bring them together. Yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, hopefully it's one in one uh, is more than two but when I have them both <laughs> together. And it's fun for me in terms of the writing because I get to write um, kind of uh, show these characters from different angles, like Harry Bosch through Renee Ballard's eyes and vice versa, um, which I don't get to do when I write a book where one of, just one of these characters carries the narrative. Do you get surprised as a writer how these two main characters end up interacting or do you know pretty much going into it this is how they are going to you know have a conversation for example well surprise might be too strong a word but i don't outline my books and so what i write you know comes to me on that day on that given day uh that i'm doing that writing and so it's it's not as planned as as it possibly looks but but then again it is a world that i'm controlling so it's it's hard to end up being surprised by anything yeah i mean i guess do you go in knowing if someone's going to like someone else or not or do they kind of just feel it out themselves because these are all people floating around in your head yeah i mean i you know i think there's a little bit uh, it's funny i'm writing a uh well a book that i would call almost a direct sequel to this book and uh they're kind of at odds in the new book because of something that happens uh in in the book we're talking about um, which I don't want to spoil, so I'm, I won't get into it. But, but yeah, I mean, from you can tell book, us. You oh, can yeah, tell us. We won't tell anyone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just yeah, tell just us. Just between us. Right? <laughs> yeah. Um, that's like Mike Wallace, just between uh, you and me. <laughs> right. <laughs> and everyone watching or listening. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, um, it's just, it's, it's, um, it, it, you, know, you, you can't be static from book to book. I guess that's what I'm struggling to say. So these guys, these two uh, detectives, one private, one, one LAPD, they get along because they have a shared mission, if you will. But, you know, you can't do that every time. So, so sometimes you got to put stuff in that pushes them apart. Then they have to come back together. So, you know, that, that's always the governing thing. Don't do the same thing exactly the same again, you know. So that's why uh, the next book will have them a little bit at odds. You know, uh, I think the last time you were on, we asked you because it was uh, not quite the beginning of the pandemic, but I think we were kind of, uh, well, we didn't know what if we were in the middle of it or not. Because here we are two, two years into it, right? <laughs> no one has any idea. No, but I think we did ask you at the time if that had an impact on your writing. I'm curious if it has an impact on your storylines. Do you incorporate uh, the pandemic into it? Yeah, I mean, it's weird. It's like that decision. Um, everybody in my position, all the writers that are writing books out there, contemporary books have to uh, face, you know, do you put it in or not? Um, you know, there's a lot of people who want to escape into fiction because it's been a tough couple of years. And so do you want to remind them of that in your book? So that's that's the question. But for me, it was kind of a no brainer because I've always set my book 
books in the year that they're published and I always reflect what's really going on. So to me, it would have been like a cut and run to not mention it. And, you know, you don't want to be overpowering with it, but in this book, you know, people wear masks. There's talk about, it's set in January of this year. So it was before uh, vaccines were readily available, but they were coming. And so there's a discussion about that, whether, you know, to get the vaccine or not. Uh, in fact, there's a scene in this book where uh, Harry, who qualifies for the first vaccines, uh, uh, Ballard drives him to Dodger Stadium to get a vaccine. I was going to ask if Harry Bosch is getting the vaccine. Yeah, well, I was going to ask something (laughs) kind of similar. I was going to ask, is is Bosch a mask kind of guy? Because, you know, a lot of people, for example, a lot of police forces all around the country who are not uh, into wearing masks for one reason or another. Is he a mask guy? Yeah, he is in this. um, But he's also, you know, he's not a cop anymore. So he was kind of uh, settled in staying at home and staying safe, like most of us were outside of the news media, which never can, you know, stop being the news media. But but he was, you know, content to be at home. And then Renee Bauer brings him this case that she needs help with. And now he's out in the community. And uh, so it, so even though it's a year into uh, the pandemic, as this book starts, it's really Bosch stepping out for the first time and he hasn't gotten vaccinated vaccinated yet not because of any kind of disbelief or anything he's just been content to be at home but now that he's out and about and working with Ballard she takes him to get a vaccine he does have masks she has masks um you know but again it's not the overpowering story it's it's just like it's there this is part of life now yeah and and it's not really debated that much it's just it's just part of it Michael Connolly with us. Uh, The book is The Dark Hours and more with him just a few minutes away here on In-Depth. And welcome back to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman and still with us is author Michael Connolly. His new book, The Dark Hours, it's a Bosch ballad book. I like saying that, Bosch ballad book. Ballad and Bosch, Bosch and ballad. Bosch, yeah. yeah. So, um... The open for this is uh, Renee Ballard's under one of the overpasses, right? Because it's New Year's and she knows that that's the safe place to be because people are going to shoot their guns into the air and you don't want to be caught by a bullet that comes (laughs) flying on down, uh, which is, you know, a very Los Angeles thing. So that's the whole thing that you do, right? We know we have the sense of place because everything is connected to something in this city. Does it ever stop giving? Are you going to run out of stuff or is there something about L.A. that just, you know, there's always going to be something to pick up on? Yeah, I mean, there's no way I think well, I'll ever run out of stuff. Uh, you guys will never run out of news from this city. Um, you know, it's it's a vibrant, always changing city, um, not always for the good, um, th- you know, as far as occurrences that I draw from. But um, it's I've been so fortunate, you know, I ended up here working for the newspaper and then I wrote fiction about it, not really realizing how this place um, really catches a lot of attention from around the world. And, uh, you know, cause I think a lot of people feel that trends, whether good or bad, that's, uh, it will start in LA and then they'll kind of move around the world. So people pay attention to the city. I didn't know that as I was writing these first books, but, you know, then I started, you know, selling books all around the world. And then I did realize, um, but Los Angeles has really been a gift that keeps giving to me. And I, I don't see that ending. Um, you know, I have to work for it. You know, I go out and I talk to people and I observe things and so forth. So it's, it's, it's not like I sit at my desk and it all comes to me, but, but it is there and there's a lot to mine. 
The uh, the TV show. Uh, I just actually recently finished the last season of Bosch, but there's a there's a offspring of that uh, coming to TV. What can you tell us about that and that and when are we going to see it? The um, the show's called Bosch Legacy, and it, it kind of follows a track that's in the books. Um, about ten years ago, uh, Bosch quit the LAPD and kind of struck out on his own. Um, he does take some cases as a private eye, but he also just follows up on cases he couldn't solve and and things that bother him. He gets he sticks his nose in. And so the new show is Bosch without a badge. Um, it also focuses on two other characters. His daughter, uh, Maddie, is now a police officer. We jump jump uh, to uh, we were uh, we were pre the last season was pre-COVID. Now we jump all the way to this year. So it's been about 18 months between the shows in terms of story time. And uh, so uh, rather than show his daughter like training to be a cop, she's, she's already on the street and she's a rookie. And that's an interesting thing. I think that's uh, been really well accomplished because we've already filmed the first season. It'll probably come out, my guess is, uh, you know, March or April, uh, kind of keeping the same cycle we had with the, the first show. And then the third character that we spend a lot of time with is uh, the, the lawyer, Money Chandler, played by Mimi Rogers. So it's kind of like a three-hander. Yeah, great character. Uh, so good. Way. Great, yeah. great character. Yeah, it's been fun. Um, and, you know, it spread the storytelling out a lot. I mean, they're intertwined in cases, so it's not like three separate stories. But um, we spend more time than we have in the past with Bosch's daughter and with his somewhat uh, sometime adversary uh, uh, money Chandler. How does he feel about Maddie being a cop? Because, you know, when she told him first that she was going to go in the recruitment program, that the question was like, are, are you sure? Right. Yeah, I think he was directing that question to himself. Are you <laughs> sure uh, that, that you want your daughter doing this after what you've gone through? Um, and so he's there as kind of like the, the, you know, the fatherly wisdom but, you know, there's a scene in the new new show where, uh, you know, Bosch is actually listening to KNX radio and they're reporting an officer shot in Hollywood. And that's all. They don't have the name of the uh, officer yet. And Bosch just freaks out because it could be his daughter. Um, so he, he goes through a lot of what a, probably any parent does whose uh, child becomes a police officer and, and chooses to serve the community in that way. But he knows a lot more about what the risks are. So so he's a nervous guy in this, uh, you know, in this your, new season. In your next book, you're going to have to move us to FM. Yeah. <laughs> From we'll do that. From the frequency, right? I have a question. Uh, you know, uh, whenever I go and I do fairly often hiking up in the Hollywood Hills, I always see the house that, that uh, for those people who have watched the Bosch TV show, uh, is the house he lives in in the program does anybody actually live in that house it's a great house uh yeah i mean it's it, but it's somebody who lives in new york and has a business out here in los angeles so so it's like it's only a two-bedroom house and it's actually very small with you know big windows so the the whole city is basically brought into the house but it's a tiny uh little house on the hill that is better than a hotel room for this person and so that allows us to kind of say say to him this is when we need it can you do your business or your LA uh, business <laughs> at other times? And so we have a, a good relationship and a, and a really good uh, access to that house uh, as far as using it, but it's a real pain to film up there because there's no place to park trucks and all that. Kind yeah. Of I stuff. was going to ask if it's all filmed in the house or if some of it is done on a set. 
The um, Maddie's bedroom is a set. That's about it. Um, you know, the living room and obviously the view and the back deck, that's all we use the real place and we have to, you know, ferry people up in vans um, and equipment because um, there's just no place to put a lot of stuff. And then when COVID hit, you know, and we could, we used to pack like 12 people into a van to take them up. Now you can take the maximum of four. Uh, it really slowed things down. Um, anyway, I'm, I'm talking like a producer here, not a writer. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just saying that I used to get pressure from the producers to say, uh, let's limit how much we spend at Bosch's house. <laughs> uh, because, no uh, more scenes in the house. It's too hard. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. All right. Um, the book is The Dark Hours, and the new series will be what? This is IMD TV, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. I can say that three times real fast. <laughs> no, I, 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 I hear, I hear they're going to rebrand it to something. Uh, Are they something else? Yeah. yeah. All right. So 2022 for that. Michael Connolly, thanks for coming back on the show. Thanks for having me. That's in depth for today. We'll be back tomorrow. It's a great house. That house is great. It's a great house. Yeah, great not house. a bad life for whoever owns that thing too. No. All right. We'll see you tomorrow, 1 p.m.